In this sermon series, we're studying the wisdom psalms. These lyrical lessons to live by proclaim practical understanding for our daily lives while pointing us to Jesus, the very embodiment of all wisdom. This content comes from Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. I graduated from Marshall University while I was there. Um, I was pursuing a degree in fine arts and photography, which was a waste of my time. Not really. I met my wife there, so that was a uh, win. So everything was a win. However, from a professional perspective, that was a wasted uh, degree. I didn't need that. Uh, And I started to realize I didn't need a degree in photography because I was going to start my own business. That was my plan. So I started going over to Corbley Hall. I think it's Corbley, where they had the business stuff. You know all about it. And uh, doing some marketing classes, some accounting classes. I sit down in my first accounting class, and the, the professor, uh, this was his year of retirement, so it was a blast. This was his final semester teaching the class. He couldn't, you know, could be held accountable for anything, so it was like it was a blast. It was an absolute blast. And he starts out the class by saying to us, hey, he's trying to teach us about uh, interest and the accrual of interest. He says, if you, when you were a baby, if you put a thousand dollars into this, uh, into the stock exchange or whatever that's called. S&P 500. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. And average rate of 12% growth, which I guess it was at the time. I have no idea now. How much would it be worth when you were 65? And everybody had their guesses, whatever. Over a million dollars. So he says, Wow. You don't add another penny to that, 65 years, 12%, million dollars, over a million dollars. He says, so what should you do with this information? Those people have some answers, right? Oh, I should go invest some money now, or I should be ready to invest uh, money when my kids are born. No, you're all wrong. He says, you should go home, and you should slap your parents in the face for not investing $1,000 when you were born. Of course, he was joking. It was funny. Uh, I don't think he meant that extreme of a response. Uh, we all got a good kick out of that. But I've thought about that several times this week as I've been preparing for this sermon, as I've been in Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, because Psalm 127 and, and 128 is all about investing, the wisdom of investing in the next generation. The wisdom of pouring ourselves in, not financially, although if you've ever invested in the next generation, you know it costs money. But not primarily about money, primarily about a spiritual investment and holistically investing our lives in the next generation. There's importance to that. What we're going to see in Psalm 127 and 128 is that impacting future generations is a worthy investment. That's an understatement. And not only is it a worthy investment, but it is backed by the promises of God and the power of God. And it is exemplified for us and secured for us by Jesus. You're going to see all that play out in these two short psalms that come back to back. So, Father, today what we know not, for me that's a great deal, please teach us. What we are not, and for me, that is a great deal of longing to be more like Jesus, of desiring to know you better. There is so much that I don't have. Will you please give us that today? What we are not, please make us. Change us into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we'll cover two short psalms, Psalm 127 
Psalm 128. Both of them are uh, wisdom psalms, and both of them tie together very nicely. The 127th is attributed to Solomon, David's son. Um, now, the way that it's titled, and there's another psalm like this too, I think it's Psalm 72, where it's titled in such a way in the Hebrew that you could actually, it could be dedicated to him too. So there's an outside chance that David wrote this for his son Solomon. But either way, it's either David or Solomon to pen the 127th. The 128th is not attributed, uh, but they do fit nicely together. They are, more importantly, songs of ascent. So starting in Psalm 120 all the way through Psalm 134 are what are called Psalms of Ascent. So when you would go up to the temple, you would go up to the temple. Or if you were not from Jerusalem and you were coming to Jerusalem, your last part of your journey would be ascending. You would be coming into Jerusalem. And so there would be songs that the people of God would sing as they went. And as we'll see, not all those were just, you know, kind of feel-good worship songs. Some of them were songs of wisdom and understanding, as we'll, as we'll see today. So these are both psalms. Of ascent, And not only that, but they're going to kind of function like a sandwich, if you will. There's going to be two slices of, of bread, and then there's going to be some content in between. What we're going to see in the slices of bread can be understood generally. There are ideas for living that can be understood across everything that we do. But they also, in the context of this psalm, will be understood very, very specifically. On one side, we're going to see self-denial. We have to deny ourselves as we follow after God and as we live this life. And on the other side, we're going to see we need to rely on God. So deny self, rely on God, and that's generally applicable to all we do. But in between is going to be this idea that generational investment, investing in the next generation, gives way to dividends that are generational that pay back. There's, there's rewards for investing in the next generation. And so we'll see all that kind of come together in these two uh, psalms. And again, we'll see that impacting future generations is it's a worthy investment for our time. It's backed by the promises and power of God and it's exemplified and secured by Jesus. We start in verse 1. Verse 1 and 2 are going to show us what it looks like generationally to live lives of self-denial. And it's going to show us that in two parts. It's going to show that in our working, our striving, we must deny self. And it's also going to show us that in our resting, in our Sabbathing, we also practice self-denial. Verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The first analogy is that of a house. Now, some scholars think he may be referring to Solomon building the temple. That's possible. It could also be about just the dwelling, the physical dwelling. But most likely, based on the context of the psalm, it's doing what the Hebrew Bible often does. The Hebrew Old Testament is use the word house to refer to a family to refer to a society, to refer to a generation, a group of people. And so this house, right, like the house of David would be all the society that would be the people of God, Israel. So it could be an entire society, an entire group. It could be referred to as just a nuclear family as well, but that's most likely the context of it here, is a family, a society, a group of people. 
And he says, unless the Lord builds it, those who labor, labor in vain. When I think of building in vain, I always think back to the Tower of Babel. If you remember that story, the, the people of the earth decided that they were going to build a tower to heaven. They were going to get there by themselves. And the, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones says uh, they hadn't got very far because the Bible tells us God had to come down to look at it. So they weren't close enough that even he, he, that they were close enough to him that he had to come down to see. And when he does, he confuses their languages. And I guarantee it was beautiful. And I guarantee there have been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears put into it. I guarantee you they weren't lazy. They worked and worked and worked, but their labor was in vain because their labor was not in the Lord. It was not God's desire, it was not God's way, and so it was in vain. The next analogy is that of a watchman who watches over a city. And that analogy is a little more difficult for us to get these days because we have ring doorbells to do that for us. Those are our watchmen. We have digital watchmen that we put on our doors. But in these days, and really, not, you don't have to go too far back in history to find walled cities where people stand uh, on top of the walls and they watch, in particular at night, to make sure that there are no enemies approaching. And for this, I thought of The Mandalorian because in this past season, my second favorite Star Wars character ever, Ahsoka Tano, she has this episode that really highlights her. And in the very beginning, the Watchmen are on the tower and they're banging a giant gong because there's an enemy approaching. And it's just one former Jedi Padawan, Ahsoka, with two lightsabers. And they send out the warriors and the warriors go out in vain. And eventually she finds herself there at the gate of the city and she tells them, in 24 hours I'm going to be back and you're going to realize that you're watching over this city, right? Unless justice is served and you help me you know, with what I'm requesting, right? It will be in vain that you watch. You can stay awake, but it will be in vain. And, she, and it proves to be, to be true. You see, this isn't an excuse for laziness. This verse is not saying, oh, just God will take care of it. Right? There's the Oliver Cromwell. Uh, uh, I, if you know that name, the English Civil War. I know nothing about the English Civil War, but I've heard that name before. And he's famous for having supposedly said, put your trust in God, my boys, but keep your powder dry. Right? Like, live in faith, trust God as you do your work, but you better keep your gunpowder dry. You better put the work in, you better put the time in, you better put the effort in. That's what this verse is about. But on the flip side, no matter how much work or effort or energy you put in, if you're not doing it God's way, if you're not doing it in God's wisdom, then your labor will be in vain. But on the flip side, and this is good news for those of us, right, who labor and are weary and tired, if we are laboring in the power of God and in the way of God, your labor, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, tells us will never be in vain. None of it. So verse 1 says to us, we must get rid of self-reliance and instead rely on God as we do what he has called us to do. Stop relying on self, keep working, keep striving, but in God's power and in God's way, reliant on him. Verse 2, I think, is a lot harder. We all get working, striving. In our society, we like to be busy. Verse 2 presses in on my soul a lot, a lot harder. 
says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating a bread of anxious toil, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Hear me say this first. I'll, I'll hedge myself here. There will be seasons in this life where you must burn the candle at both ends. You won't have a choice. You're going to have to do it. Where you will strive and you will wake up early and you will go to bed late and you will be tempted to be anxious in your toil. You won't feel like it's enough. You won't feel like you're getting done enough. You'll feel like what is stacked up against you is higher than what you can overcome. What this verse reminds us of is that to live our lives that way, thinking that if we burn the candle at both ends, ceaselessly working, striving, never resting, never stopping, that we're going to actually just burn ourselves out. And it will be in vain that we have strived so hard. See, verse 2 is about the self-denial of our Sabbathing. And I'll get right to it, and, and I'm preaching into the mirror you have to understand this. I've had to sit under this all week. But when's the last time you stopped? I mean really stopped. Stopped striving. Stopped working. Stopped scrolling. Stopped scheming. Stopped planning. Stopped the entertainment. Stopped the sports. Stopped the everything. When's the last time you stopped going and hustling and bustling and building and making and, and, and plotting. I truly stopped. Now, I don't mean that you, you collapsed in exhaustion or that a pandemic hit and all of a sudden you were forced to stop. How, how much, if you're like me, how much did your heart churn in that? Not being able to strive and work and do. That testifies to my heart. That Sabbathing, that resting, that stopping, right? I don't have enough faith to do that. I don't have enough faith in God's plan and God's sovereignty and God's power to cease, whether it be for a full 24 hours or for eight hours one afternoon or every third week for a day. I, I, I don't have the faith to do it. You see... Does it take faith to step out and risk and plant a church? Yeah, it does. Does it take faith to build something or make something or, or step out in, in faith to follow God in some form of, of ministry or new job or new venture? Yes, it does. But I, I would dare say that, that it takes even more faith to stop, to cease. To say to God, you will accomplish your purposes even if I'm sitting here in your word or sitting here in prayer or sitting here resting. When's the last time you Sabbathed? With energy to spare, with a to-do list full of things to do, with ideas spinning around in your head, you said, nope, I'm going to cease from striving. I'm going to stop and I'm going to rest denying self, I'm going to rest in God's sovereign and invincible power and plan. Listen, I'm fully convinced today that for us in the, our society, this is one of the hardest things God calls us to. To stop. To rest. To not busy ourselves. 
And I'm also fully convinced that there is very few things in our current society and world that will shine the light of our faith in Jesus more than ceasing from striving. Preaching to myself. Hopefully you feel led by the Holy Spirit in it too, but I'm preaching to myself. So that's the first slice of bread on this self-denial sandwich. Do we deny ourselves as we work and strive? Are we saying, I'll do it God's way, in his time, in his path, uh, by his character? And am I also taking time to rest and stop, and in that way, denying myself as well? And the context now comes, the content now tells us what we're do, why we need this rest, and why we need to work in a way that is is submitting to God instead of to ourselves. Verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. I think it's interesting that this comes in a context of working and resting. If you ever cared for the next generation as a student or as a teacher or as a parent or as a grandparent or as a mentor, whatever, you know that it'll take a bit of energy, strength, commitment, investment. It's hard work. It also requires us to rest up, to be made whole, to deny ourselves and have faith in, in God's work. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit, of the, womb, or the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Verse 3 tells us that investing in the next generation is a worthy cause because future generations are a heritage and a reward. The language here is that of uh, them being of high value. And they're high value, right? Not like a prize, right? Sometimes we treat our kids like they're prizes, right? kind of cater our lives around them and, and make everything about them, these children, they're these prize. No, they're of high value the same way bricks are of high value. Okay, now I'm not demeaning our kids when I say this either, but bricks are of a high value when you're building a home. Lumber is of high value when you're building a home. You see, they will be the building blocks of a generational uh, legacy for a family. They will be the building blocks of a society. They will be the building blocks of a community. They will be the building blocks of the kingdom of God. They're a heritage. They're a reward. And so that's family legacy. Generational legacy. Societies are built generationally. So is the kingdom. Verse 4 says they're a worthy cause of investing in the next generation is a worthy cause because uh, they're arrows for the kingdom. Future generations are arrows for the kingdom. And I love this analogy. You think back to that time uh, when, uh, these, when they would go to battle. There were mainly two types of weapons. There were those that you held in your hand the entire time or you kept it on your side. You fought with them. You never got rid of them. They never left you. You wielded them. There were others that you would just, like I'm thinking of a catapult, just clumsily chuck at something, right? But there was one weapon that with deep intentionality, you would send it away from you. With aim and preciseness, the goal was for it to leave your presence. 
The arrow is most effective in battle when it's no longer in the quiver. You see what's being said? That we are preparing intentionally to send out the next generation for the sake of the kingdom. And so we build into them with intentionality. We invest in them. We invest generationally so that they can leave. So that they can go out and impact the world around them with character and goodness and love. And most importantly, the truth of the gospel. Verse 5 says investment in the next generation is a worthy cause because future generations leave us unashamed uh, when we stand uh, with his enemies in the gate. Now, verse 4 is like a war analogy. Verse 5 is a public square analogy. So not enemies like people who are trying to get you uh, in battle, but enemies who are maybe trying to undercut your endeavors or, or people who are trying to, to kind of take their chunk of flesh out of you in a maybe a business sense or a, a relationship sense. And what is being said here in a little bit more of a complex way is that when you invest in future generations and future generations then come out and they go forward living lives of upstanding character and goodness and love, then now okay, those who have invested in them can stand in the gate unashamed. Because what they taught the way they live, now being made manifest in the next generation, proves that they were on the right path. That even when they were ridiculed for maybe the ways that they parented, or ridiculed for the ways that they taught, or ridiculed for the ways that they mentored or interacted with the next generation, the next generation proves that it was a worthy investment. Kingdom-shaped generations stamp validity on the previous generation. Now, this has to be said. Because this sounds like it's written only for people who've had babies. And we got some crazy families in this in this joint. <laughs> but crazy people are people who've had more than like three kids. That's like it makes you insane, right? In our society these days. We got some crazy folks in here that have had a bunch of babies. And this is certainly for people who have had babies. We're thankful for those who are raising families, but it's not only for them. Don't miss that it says children are heritage, not your children are heritage. Remember, it says the fruit of the womb, not the fruit of your womb. It's not a stretch to say that these verses are applicable to everyone. All of us have opportunities to invest in the next generation, there are older siblings who will invest in their younger siblings. I see it all the time. There are single folks who will mentor and teach and invest in the next generation. There are married folks yet to conceive who will invest in their friends' children. Who will invest in foster care or adoption. These aren't just for married folks with a bunch of babies. There are people in this room, there are people on our core team, some of them single, some of them without children, who have invested their lives in my children. In the next generation of Bokels, 
by making them feel seen and known, by speaking the truth and exemplifying the truth of the gospel to them. I know there's other families in this room that would testify of the exact same thing, that you don't have to have birthed children to invest in the next generation. That's foolishness. These verses are for all of us. So we tie it all into the context and know that we must labor and work to invest in the next generation. And as we invest in the next generation, are we reliant on our own strength and on our own power? Are we reliant on what the culture says we should do? Or are we reliant on the Word of God? Now, I'm not saying we don't take cues from our own intuition. I'm not saying we don't take cues from society and, and wise minds, but the baseline, the, the foundation is the Word of God, the example of Jesus, the Holy Spirit guiding us in our lives. We cannot rely on ourselves. We must rely on God. And so in doing that, our labor will not be in vain. Let your investment in the next generation, however that comes, be shaped by the Word be postured in prayer, be led by the Holy Spirit, be uh, imitating of Jesus, and your labor will not be in vain. Not a single diaper change will be in vain. Not a single sleepless night will be in vain. Not a single minute as a teacher where it feels like the kids just don't get it will be in vain. Not a single time that you're over at someone else's home and you don't have kids of your own and you choose to get down on the floor and play with the kids and put your life into that. Not a single one of those minutes will be in vain. None of it. It will not be in vain. So work to invest in the next generation. There will be rewards. Verse 1 of chapter 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways, there is blessing. There are dividends for the investment in the next generation. He goes on to describe some of them. Fruit will come. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. You invest in the next generation, you'll see fruit. Notice this is a promise, by the way, that doesn't have a timeline attached to it. It doesn't say at 18 you'll eat the fruit. You might not. By 25, right, like men, men, boys especially, they don't really understand life until they're about 25, right? So maybe then, but it doesn't set a timeline. Notice, too, that it promises it'll be well with you, not with your circumstances and situations. So this isn't a promise of everything being just gumdrops and lollipops and there being some set date when all of a sudden your kids or the people you've invested in as students, they all just start to get it right or you know, however you're investing in the next generation. But it is a promise that there will, be, there will be fruit. And we see it in two places primarily, and I think this is interesting. That when we invest in the next generation, what we will see, who we will see thriving and growing are the women in this verse, and the children. the men We'll see it in the men too, but in this psalm, it highlights the women and the children. It says your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. When we invest in the next generation, right, there will be the women in our society, the women in our church, the women in our families will be lifted up. They'll be placed where they can influence and impact and, and lead in situations and circumstances that have generational 
reproduction. That's what vines do, right? And I don't mean uh, physical reproduction. Although that, that is something that will happen. But it will be a reproduction of values and love and kindness and intentionality and wisdom and goodness as we build up the mamas and the single ladies and the grandmothers and those among us who are investing in the next generation. Husbands, do you nurture the vine? Is your wife your enemy or your friend? Do you build her up? Do you pour yourself into her? Because in doing so, you will be making an investment in the next generation. Women, are you helping other women? Is their success, right, seen as competitive challenge to you? Or do you rejoice when the women around you succeed? When they have opportunities to lead and impact and, and make a difference? Invest yourself in the women around you. Single men, are you honoring the, the women around you as daughters of the king? Not objectifying. Not uh, treating them like just whatever but investing your life, loving, leading. Are we investing in the daughters of God? And if so, if we are, the fruit will be uh, generational reciprocation of wisdom and goodness, beauty, and it will also be the fruit of joy. If you've ever had good wine, the right amount, not too much, you've experienced joy. True, uninhibited joy. And there are women in this room and in my life who are that. They bring joy, life, wherever they go. Might we be a church crawling with women who feel mobilized and invested in and set free to both reciprocate wisdom and learning and knowledge into the next generation after generation after generation, but also feel free to be happy, rejoicing, full of life. And we will all reap the benefits. The second half says your children will be like olive shoots around your table. We already talked about what that looks like. That our children, right, that are sent out as we invest in the next generation will be people who are a heritage and a reward. They'll be arrows for the kingdom. They will make it so that uh, we are unashamed in our legacy. But now we see the fruit being brought to bear. Olive shoots are, are full of energy and potential. And when you sit down, whether it's at your own table or the table of a family that you have the ability to walk with, or you sit down in, in the cafeteria at school, however it is that you're investing in the next generation, you see all these olive shoots full of potential and growth. By the way, it's a good excuse for the family meal. Can't sit if you can make some time to sit down with your family, especially as your family grows and things get more busy. Do it. It's a good chance to check in on the olive shoots, see how they're doing. So investing in women, investing in children—that's the blessing of these of generational investment. It leads to a generational harvest of families and societies and groups that are thriving and flourishing. But lest we forget it, 
The psalm closes. It says, Behold, thus is the man uh, who be blessed who fears the Lord. So the, the promise is there, but he says, The Lord, he prays something. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. He started with self-denial. Then he talked about generational investment that then pay, pays generational dividends. And he finishes with reliance on God. This isn't Self-denial isn't belittlement of self. It's not just beating yourself up. It's saying that all of my strength, although I may have all these strengths about me and some weaknesses too, they're not enough. I have to rely on a higher power. I have to rely on God to walk me through this. And so we rely, we turn from self-denial to Godward reliance, and that's what is here. It's a prayer. He closes with a prayer in one of the quickest ways, one of the quickest paths to self-denial one of the quickest paths to Godward reliance is prayer. And so I would finish with this challenge. Do you pray about your labor? And in particular, your labor to, to impact the next generation. Do you pray for the next generation? Do you pray for your kids, parents? Teachers, do you pray for your students? Mentors, do you pray for your mentees? If you're a school counselor, do you pray for those who you have the opportunity to counsel? Do you pray for your neighbor's children? Do you pray for your friend's children? Are you praying for the next generation? And not only that, but are we praying for those who impact the next generation? Do we pray for the foster parents, the adoptive parents, the biological parents? Do we pray for the teachers in our schools? Do we pray for the mentors? Do we pray for the counselors, the older siblings, all those who are investing and influencing the next generation? Might we be marked by prayerfulness, reliance on God to impact the next generation for His glory, with His love, with His truth, for both salvation, but not only that, but growth to become more like Jesus. We cannot see true generational impact apart from the power of God. So deny, deny yourself and rely on God. And the good news is that the power of God is available to you and to everyone in this room. Speaking of the, the fruit of the womb, remember Mary? Her labor was tough. A young woman, an angel comes to her, says, You're going to carry a, a baby. Uh, but it won't be from your husband. And now she's got to deal with the ridicule and the scoffing and the mocking, along with just the, the she's going to have to travel with this baby. She's gonna, the baby's going to be born in a barn. It's just, it'll be a lot of labor. But her labor will not be in vain. The angel says to her this promise, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb fruit of the womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David generational blessing and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end speaking of shoots and fruits Isaiah's promise there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a promise of the coming Messiah who we now know as Jesus born in Bethlehem who would grow and become a man and live a perfect, sinless life. And although his perfection and his sinlessness, the plan of God was for him to die on behalf of sinners like you and sinners like me. And so he goes to the cross. And there there's nails put into his hands and his feet. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all our sin. Your sins can be washed away by the finished work of Jesus on the cross through his blood. That's the fruit of Mary's womb. That's the fruit of heaven's promised Messiah. And not only would it bring salvation to one generation, right? There will be a family of God. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus' name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And in this room still, although those words were written thousands of years ago, there are people in this room who generationally right, are part of the family of God. Jesus has grown the family of God. Jesus invested his very life to the point of death so that generation after generation after generation might be impacted. And now here's the reward. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Here's the point. Jesus both gave the example of what it was like to sacrificially invest Himself in generation after generation after generation. And He secured All the promises of God that were in Psalm 127 and 128 for the children of God, for the generations of the kingdom of God. And so in Jesus, we find the the power, we find the example, we find the security of the promise that if we then invest our lives in the next generation, that there will be dividends, there will be reward for them. So... Two questions or two thoughts. One, keep pursuing reliance on God instead of self. So as you work, work in God's way. And the most mundane task, are you thinking about what it looks like to work with the character and Christ-likeness of Jesus? Are you thinking about what it looks like to, to take a job if you're in the midst of a transition or if you're being called into a certain ministry to work in a way that reflects the image of God and, and, and brings glory to Jesus. Sabbath his way. I, I, I've talked to uh, several people this week, and I've talked to myself this week about how busy, and, and it seems like months away from the day when I can just, you know, not do anything for anyone else, right? We're going to a family reunion today, but it's a family reunion, right? It doesn't necessarily feel like Sabbath rest. But what does it look like to plan that out and regularly take time to cease from striving and trust and rely on God in that? And then pray. Your will be done, God. With my children or with the people that I'm impacting in the next generation, your will be done. And then 
get to work? Might we invest generationally, intentionally, face-to-face, see the children and young people in your life and make them feel seen? Put the phone down. Put work away. Encourage and affirm the next generation. If you have a family of your own at home, take time to worship as a family. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to study some commentary or have some little devotional to give your kids every night. Just give them some of the Word of God and some prayer. Maybe sing a song. I don't know. If it takes you five minutes, that's fine, but invest in them. Worship together as a family. If you don't have a family of your own, or even if you do, get involved. What are some other ways you can invest in the next generation? Big brother, big sister, foster care, volunteering at a, at a charity or a, a, local, a local school. How can you invest in the next generation? Give. Give to support an a, a organization that's, that's helping pregnant mothers who are faced with a tough decision about whether to, to keep the baby or not. Invest in an organization that's going to make it uh, easier for them to carry through with that pregnancy. Invest in uh, orphan care, widow care organizations. Invest in the next generations. This is manipulative, but volunteer for the kids' class upstairs. You can go watch those guys. You can invest in that generation that's stomping on our heads. You get involved. But wherever you're at, model Christ-likeness because the next generation is watching. And hopefully, by God's good grace, they'll see Jesus in us. And that will be the impact that we have on the next generation. Impacting future generations is a worthy investment backed by the promises and power of God and exemplified and secured by Jesus. Father, I've been hit by this. I hope that by your grace we're all challenged today, not in a uh, weighed down, uh, demoralizing way, but in an encouraging and uplifting way knowing that it'll be your power and your strength, knowing that it'll be in the power of Jesus, not ours, that we can fearlessly and uh, regularly and consistently invest in the next generation, knowing that our labor will not be in vain. And in that, may we see the kingdom of God flourish. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.